Well, I'd like to welcome you once again to our uh, Easter service online. And uh, what an extraordinary time it is to be living. Uh, It's an extraordinary time to be able to uh, bring God's word to bear upon our current situation here in the world. You know, back um, a few months ago, we we plan, we come up with a theme uh, for Easter. Obviously, the big theme is always the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but we, you know, try to work with that. And we came up with the theme of Jesus renewal. And that theme is based on the words found in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I make all things new. But we had no idea whatsoever when we were coming together and choosing that theme how the entire world, whether knowingly or unknowingly, would be deeply longing for that renewal. You see, when we're talking about Jesus' renewal, we're talking about the fact that God through Christ is in the process of renewing all things. And when we come to that passage there in Revelation 21.5, this is now at the climactic moment when when everything is completed and the, the work that, that began really on the cross and then through the resurrection is brought to full fruition. But you see, whether you know it or not, the fact that you, the fact that I, the fact that that many others, if not everyone, is distressed or distraught or despairing, fearful, anxious, and, and longing for deliverance from the global curse of the coronavirus, whether we know it or not, this shows that our deepest longings are for a world where sin and death no longer exist. A world where there is no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. A world where every tear has been wiped from every eye. A world where these fearful and death-filled days are remembered no more. But you might be wondering, okay, well, what does Easter have to do with that? And the fact of the matter is Easter has everything to do with that. Because you see, Easter was the beginning of the end of the reign of sin and death. Let me say that again. Easter was the beginning of the end of the reign of sin and death. You see, what many do not realize is that death is not this thing that is disconnected from something else. It is not independent of other things. As a matter of fact, death is the result of something, the Bible says. You might even wonder, why, why, why does anyone die? Why, why death? And it's, it's a great question. It's a question that we should ask ourselves. And I think it's a question that more people are probably asking today uh, than uh, have been asking for a long, long time. Why is there death? Well, the Bible tells us 
that death is a result of sin. And so the Bible tells us in uh, the letter to the church in Rome, Paul the apostle is writing it. He says that through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin so that death passed to all people. So you see, death is the result of sin. And every gravestone, every mausoleum, every cemetery, every urn filled with the ashes of a loved one is a reminder to us of the reign of death. You see, the Bible pictures death as reigning uh, like a tyrant over the inhabitants of the world. But Jesus Christ came to set the world right, to reverse the destructive effects of sin. He started this reversal by defeating death. So you see, that's what was happening on the cross. This was, uh, a, this was a fulfillment of centuries and centuries of promises that God had made that he would one day destroy death. The apostle Paul put it like this in writing to his friend Timothy. He said, Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And you see, this is what happened on that original Easter morning. The the stone was moved away and it was revealed that the body of Jesus was gone. And when these these women that um, we read about and Cheryl read the story to us of the account of the resurrection from the gospel of John, But as they come to the the tomb, Luke's account tells us that they were met by these angelic uh, beings and the angel asked them this great question. The angel asked them this, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then the angel said, he is not here, but he is risen just as he said. You see, my friends, this is the message that the whole world needs to hear today. This is the message that we need to hear as death looms over every nation like nothing ever seen or experienced in our lifetime. Death hangs like the proverbial sword of Damocles over all of our heads. And and as I said, this is a a day like no other day. This is an Easter like no other Easter in in my lifetime, certainly, and I would imagine in the lifetime of everyone who is uh, listening today. No, No other Easter like this where there is such a consciousness of death. You know, I was saying to a friend uh, earlier this week, every Easter... We, of course, and speaking of uh, preachers, I was speaking to a friend who's a preacher as well, uh, saying, you know, every Easter we are at pains to try to uh, communicate to people the uh, significance of the resurrection of Christ because of the inevitability of death. But, you know, most of the time, 
our audience is uh, not necessarily thinking so much about the inevitability of death. I mean, perhaps some are, maybe someone uh, in the audience would have somebody who died recently, maybe that year or something, or even, even, you know, closer to the time that they might be hearing. But, but for the average person, for the healthy person, um, most people are not really thinking so much about death. So to them, the resurrection sounds like, well, that sounds like a great thing for when I get old. That sounds like a great thing for maybe this person because they're terminally ill. Well, that, you know, that's good for somebody else. But a lot of times, it, what's the relevance to me? But here we are, and I think that this is true, that on this Easter Sunday, that more people than ever are asking the question about um, what is the solution to death? What are we doing about death? How, how can we understand this? How can we overcome this? Is there any way to uh, defeat this? Now, of course, we have people working so hard to try to come up with a vaccine. We have people uh, trying to come up with different kinds of uh, treatments and, and so forth that are going to halt the, the, the progress of this virus. And we're thankful for that. But of course, it just brings to our minds in a fresh new way, the inevitability of death. But as I said, Easter is God's solution to the death problem. And specifically, it's Jesus and his resurrection. So what I want to do now is I want us to, uh, I want us to consider Jesus and I want us to consider him in relation to three things. I want to look, first of all, at his dealings with death. And, and we're going to see that Jesus had dealings with death. He spoke about it in ways that no one ever spoke about it uh, before or since. Uh, and he confronted death, actually. And we're going to see that in a moment. But then, of course, we want to talk about his resurrection as well and the implications of that. And then we will finish by looking at the promise of his future reign. Behold, I make all things new. But when we think about Jesus and his dealings with death, let me remind you of some of the things that Jesus said about death. You know, a few years back, I did uh, some fairly extensive research on what people have said uh, throughout history regarding death. And I went back, I think the sources that uh, I was accessing took me back to, you know, maybe 500 years or so before the time of Christ. And then from there, all the way up until today. And the thing that I was really astounded by, I was actually expecting something a little more significant, something a little more profound. Uh, but apart from what the Bible itself had said, I found that nobody said anything that was in any way comforting, that was any way certain or hopeful. And, and what I concluded through that research was that everybody who'd spoken on the topic was obviously guessing. They were just simply guessing. They didn't have a, a definitive answer. But it's interesting, when you come to Jesus, you find something completely different. Jesus speaks about death and he speaks about it very definitively. And he speaks about the fact that he is going to overcome it. He's going to defeat it. Now, in uh, John 
Luke's gospel, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of them, Cheryl read the resurrection account from John, but each one of them have a resurrection account. But early on in that gospel, actually in the second chapter, there's a story of how Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem in those days, and he cleansed the temple. Now, what was happening is that the high priest was a very corrupt religious leader, and he and his family had set up a um, a business in the temple where they would take advantage of the pilgrims and they would sell them sacrifices at an exorbitant rate and they would basically financially rip them off. So Jesus comes and he sees this and he's angered by this. So he puts together a, a small whip and he goes through this area of the temple and he tips over the tables of the money changers and he actually drives them out with a whip. And then the high priest who sort of was in charge of everything, they came to Jesus and they asked him this question. They said, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus said to them, he said, basically he said, this is my authority. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they said, what are you talking about? They said, this temple, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna, you're gonna raise it up in three days. But then John tells us that he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was talking about his body. He was putting forth a challenge to them, destroy this temple. And they would be the ones who would do it later. Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it again. On another occasion, Jesus was speaking to his own disciples and he said this to them, recorded in Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus said, the son of man, speaking of himself, will be betrayed. They will condemn him to death and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So you see, Jesus spoke about the fact that he was going to die. He was going to actually be executed by the state, but yet he declared that he would rise again. Now, in the 11th chapter of John's gospel, here's probably the most amazing uh, statement that Jesus made regarding death. He said these words. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, shall never die. Listen to that again. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus made claims that no one has ever made. No one made a claim like this before or since the time of Jesus. He's the only one who spoke in this way. You can search the archives, try to find somebody in world history who said anything like this, and I promise you, uh, you will find nothing even remotely like this. Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life. And he says that, that those who believe in him will never die. So these are some of the words of Jesus concerning death. But then we find that Jesus has confrontations with death during his public ministry. And what I mean by confrontations is he, he faces death. People that have died, 
he faces their deaths and he actually does something about it. So the first one I'll just tell you about really quickly is about a young man whose mother was a widow. He was her only son and he died. Doesn't tell us any of the details about uh, how he died. It just simply tells us that he died and they were taking him out in a procession to be buried. His mother is there in the crowd. They're going out to the cemetery to bury this young man. And Jesus happens to be passing by at the same time that the procession passes by toward the cemetery. And Jesus walks up and he halts the procession and he goes over to the casket and he then tells them to stop. And he says to the young man in the casket, he says, arise. And he takes him and he brings him back to life. And then he delivers him to his mother. And of course, you can imagine, you can imagine what the people would have been experiencing. And of course, you could imagine the joy that that mother was experiencing at that moment. So Jesus sees a young man who's dead. And what does he do? He raises him from the dead. We have another story about a young woman, a young girl, actually, 12 years old. Uh, we don't know her name, but her father's name was Jairus. And Jairus was a religious leader at the time. And he had a 12-year-old daughter that was afflicted with some sickness and, and she died. Actually, he heard about Jesus. He knew that Jesus had healing power. So he sent some of his servants to ask Jesus to come and to heal his child. But before Jesus was able to get there, the child died. And when Jesus arrives at the home, there's this great lamentation. And of course, the parents are devastated because their daughter has died. And Jesus says uh, to them, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. And he says, your daughter is not dead. She's just sleeping. Well, the truth of the matter is she was dead. But from Jesus' point of view, she was actually just sleeping. So anyway, Jesus takes this little girl and he raises her from the dead and then he gives her back to her parents. And once again, can you imagine the absolute joy that filled that home? But then there's, there's um, the story of Lazarus and the statement Jesus made, I am the resurrection and the life, it was a statement that was made in the context of this man, Lazarus, having died. Now, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Him and his sisters, Martha and Mary were their names. They lived in this town called Bethany, and they were all the close friends of Jesus. Well, Lazarus had become sick, and he wasn't doing well. Jesus was not anywhere nearby at the time, but the sisters of Lazarus, they sent a message to Jesus and it said this, the one you love is sick. So Jesus got the message, but he delayed coming. He didn't come immediately. And by the time he arrives there in Bethany, Lazarus has died and he's actually died four days ago. And he's been in the tomb for four days. And so he comes and Martha, one of the sisters, she meets him and she says to him in, in deep, 
uh, anguish. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, Martha, your brother will live again. And she said, Lord, I know he will live again at the resurrection at the last day. You see, being a Jew, she had a faith in a, in a, in a final resurrection. But that's not helping her right now because her brother's dead. So she says, I know that. I know he's going to live at the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus says this to her. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection. And that's the passage that we looked at a moment ago. I am the resurrection and the life. So not only does Jesus say this, but then he proceeds to go to the tomb where Lazarus has been. Remember, he's been there four days. His body's already begun to decompose. He says to them, move away the stone. And everybody protests and says, no, that's not a good idea. His, his body's already corrupting. And Jesus says to them, did I not say, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they move the stone away and Jesus calls out in a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And sure enough, after having been dead and buried for four days, Lazarus comes forth out of the tomb. Now, an interesting thing is a little bit later in John's gospel, we read of Jesus sitting down with the, uh, for a meal with friends and, and uh, members of the community. And it says that one of the people sitting at the table was Lazarus who had been dead. Wow, think about that. Could you imagine having somebody sit around the table uh, with you for a meal who had the story that they had been dead, but they were raised to life by Jesus? So you see, Jesus confronted death and he showed his power over death by raising people from the dead. But he went even one step further and he raised himself from the dead, just as he said he would. The son of man will be betrayed. He will be mocked and uh, spit upon and, and beaten and killed. But on the third day, he will rise again. And that is the story that we read today. That is the resurrection account that we read. And in that story, in that same account by John, if we would have read just a little bit further, it would have told us about what happened when Jesus appeared to all of his disciples. Now, we read the part where he appears to Mary and she realizes that it's Jesus. But then as we read a little bit further, Jesus is with his disciples. Now, he's with his followers and he reveals himself to them as the one who died and rose again. And Thomas is not there. He's not present. So later, all the disciples say to Thomas, Thomas, the Lord has risen. We've seen him. And Thomas says, he says, I don't believe it. He says, I'll never believe it. I will never believe it unless I can put my my hand and I can touch the wounds in his hands. Unless I can put my hand on his side and, and touch the wound in his side where that spear went in, I will not believe it. So Thomas was a skeptic. Thomas said, no, I'm not, I'm not going for that. I don't care what you think you saw. I didn't see it. I don't believe it. And then the Bible tells us a week later, they're all gathered together in this room and, and Thomas is there as well. And suddenly Jesus appears in their midst. He just appears in their midst suddenly. 
And the very first thing he does, he says to Thomas, he says, Thomas, come. Thomas, touch my hands and touch my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas, seeing the risen Lord, he falls down before him and he confesses my Lord and my God. So you see, Jesus spoke about his coming victory over death. Jesus confronted death when others died and he dealt with it. Jesus dealt with the grave himself and rose again from the grave. Now, some people would say, well, this is all just mythology. This is just, uh, this is just made up. This didn't really happen. But you know, there are many, many things that would actually um, push back against those ideas that this is made up. It, it, when you read the accounts of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, what you find is that they're all so very, um, they're just so, so very real. You, you get a sense in reading them that they, oh, these are real people and these were real events. They're supernatural events connected to them, obviously, but, but the story doesn't read like a myth. The story just reads like everyday life with these amazing, miraculous things in the midst of it. But, but there are a few things. There are many things that we could point to, but we don't have the time. So I want to just take, and I want to look at a couple of things really quickly that are, are things that, that push back against the idea that this is somehow a myth. And the first thing would be the empty tomb itself. So there, there was a tomb. Jesus died. Uh, he was buried in a tomb. The tomb belonged to a man um, named Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible tells us he was a wealthy man. He had a tomb that was in a garden near the place where Jesus was crucified. Uh, it was a tomb that was uh, hewn out of the stone. It was carved out of stone. And because Joseph of Arimathea was a, was a secret follower of Jesus, uh, he wanted the body of Jesus to be placed there. And so the body of Jesus was placed in the tomb and the stone was rolled across the, the front of the tomb. And then not only that, but the religious leaders who had been responsible for putting Jesus to death, they remember that Jesus said that he would rise again. So they wanted to do anything they could to secure that from happening or to secure that from uh, being spread as a rumor. And so they went to the governor. And now this is the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate is his name. And they said to him, they said, this man, they called him a deceiver even, this deceiver while he was alive, he said he was going to rise from the dead. And if that starts to be spread around, it's going to be worse for us in the end than it was earlier. So they said, please give us a guard. And Pilate says to them, okay, you have your guard, go and make it as secure as you can. It's almost like Pilate um, himself. Now, if you know the whole gospel story, um, there was a point where Jesus did trial before Pilate. And Pilate had asked Jesus in a, in a moment, he said, who are you? And Jesus told him that he was, he was the king. 
of, of the Jews, that he was the son of God. So Pilate has all of this stuff going in his mind. And now he's hearing that he said he was going to rise from the dead. So he says to them, you can have a guard. You can go and try to secure it as well as you can. So here's what we have. We have a tomb hewn out of the, of, of the rock in the side of the mountain. We have a large stone that's rolled across it, a stone that weighs hundreds, if not a uh, thousand, maybe a uh, couple thousand pounds. We have a seal that's placed on the tomb and that's a Roman seal. So when the, when the Roman government sealed something, that meant it belonged to them. It meant do not tamper, do not touch. And nobody in their right mind was going to mess with anything that was sealed by the Roman government. Because remember, the Romans are the, the rulers over these people. And the Romans are, are brutal and they're vicious. And you don't, you don't go against them if you're thinking properly. So there is the, the Roman seal, but then there's a guard. There's a, there's a guard. There's a group of men who are set there to guard the tomb. So the idea that somehow these guys were able to um, deal with the Roman guard, break the seal, remove the stone, take the body of Jesus and go off and hide it somewhere, it, it just makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. Uh, the Romans conquered the world and they did that through their uh, superior military power. No one's gonna overpower this Roman guard to steal a body. And, and even if they stole the body, it would have been very easy to then go track them down, arrest them, tell them, take us to the body. They, they could have easily found it. No one ever found a body. The tomb was empty and it remained empty permanently. And so there, there's nothing about any of the explanations against the resurrection that really make any sense at all. But then there were the eyewitnesses. And Thomas was an eyewitness. And Mary that we read about was an eyewitness. And all of the disciples, uh, again, the story, Peter was an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness. And, and all the way through during the time after Jesus rose from the dead, the apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthian church in the 15th chapter, that there was one point where over 500 people were gathered together and they saw the resurrected Jesus. So you have all of these eyewitnesses. Now, normally when you have an eyewitness account of something, if you have a few eyewitnesses, this is uh, sufficient evidence to make a, a, a definitive decision on. And so we've got all of these eyewitnesses. Now, again, the skeptics are persistent. So they say, well, these eyewitnesses, you know, they, they just made this story up. They claim to be eyewitnesses, but, but this, they just fabricated this whole thing. But the problem with that theory is that if, if they fabricated it and they knew it wasn't true, then it's hard to explain why they would die for something that wasn't true. Because all of these um, apostles of Jesus, with the exception of one or two, they were put to death for their faith, ultimately. They were what, what we call martyred. Now, if they were martyred, for a lie, they knew it was a lie. And that, that just doesn't make sense. 
Now, some people will die as a martyr for a cause. They think the cause is true. That's why they die for it. But in this case, it would be men who died for something they knew wasn't true, and that just doesn't happen. That makes no sense at all. Some people say, oh, well, they made up the story because this was going to give them some kind of advantage. Well, it gave them zero advantage to make up this story. They lost their jobs. They lost their families. They lost their homes. They uh, became exiled. They uh, were persecuted. They were imprisoned, and many of them died. So it doesn't make sense that they would go through all of this stuff if this was a lie and they knew it. So we have these eyewitness accounts and these are powerful, powerful proofs that Jesus really did rise again. But there's one other that I want to also mention and that is the millions upon millions of transformed lives. You see, from the time of the apostles from the time of the resurrection of Jesus. It began there and it goes on to this very day. Millions upon millions upon millions of people have had their lives transformed by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. He has changed their lives. Now, some people say, well, uh, I don't believe in this Christian thing. I believe in science. Now, if you want to talk about science, let's talk about a scientific experiment. I cleared this with my friend, Dr. John Lennox, who's a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. And John actually said, this is absolutely right. This is scientific evidence. Now, here, here's the, here is the, um, here, here is the experiment. You, you take all of these people, millions upon millions, and you verify that, yes, their lives were changed. Their lives were drastically changed, dramatically changed. Not only did they say their lives were changed, but there's people around them that say, oh my goodness, oh, of that person, you cannot even believe it's the same person that they used to be. I've heard these stories over and over and over again for many, many years. Um, but, th but this goes all the way back to the time of Christ to this very day. And so they say, Jesus changed my life. Um, uh, others say, yes, Jesus changed their life. Uh, this past few weeks, a friend of mine who's a pastor, he put out a, a kind of a suggestion to his congregation, and this went out far beyond his congregation, that, that everybody would take a few minutes and just do a little video recording of how Jesus changed their life, just hashtag it, Jesus changed my life. And then they would, um, they would post that on their social media and just let people hear the story of how Jesus changed their life. Well, I did that because I thought, you know, Jesus did change my life and I wanna take uh, two or three minutes. I think mine ended up being about three minutes to just tell that story. But you see, when you get all of these millions upon millions of people who have radical life transformation and they all point to the same cause, they point to faith in Jesus Christ as the cause for this life transformation, that is some pretty serious scientific evidence that this is a real thing. Now, like I said, there are millions and millions of these stories, but I want to share just one story with you today. And it's a story that I knew about, but I didn't know 
uh, some of the details, but I just read about this in the Atlantic um, just uh, a couple weeks ago. I think the date on the article was March 17th. And, and this uh, story has to do with um, a man named Francis Collins. Francis Collins is the director of the National Institutes of Health. He is one of the most widely respected physician geneticists in the world. He is deeply involved in containing the coronavirus pandemic and somebody that all of us Americans have become very familiar with, Anthony Fauci, uh, who is arguably the world's leading infectious disease specialist, he works for Francis Collins at the NIH and is also his close friend. So this writer for The Atlantic, uh, Peter uh, Werner, uh, he interviews Collins about the coronavirus and they talk about just the, the virus and he gives a lot of um, amazing insight from his uh, scholarly and, and medical point of view uh, regarding the virus and how to defeat it and so forth. But, but in that interview, interestingly, um, Peter Werner also goes into telling the story of the conversion of Francis Collins from atheism to Christianity. And so I want to read some excerpts from that and, and just listen. And, and again, keep in mind that this is just one of millions of stories, millions upon millions, perhaps even billions of stories where you have radical life transformation and you have Jesus as the stated cause. And so uh, Peter uh, wrote this. He's talking about his uh, conversation with uh, Francis Collins. He says, Collins told me about a patient he had gotten pretty attached to. She reminded me of my grandmother, Collins said. And this woman suffered from advanced cardiac disease, which included almost daily episodes of crushing chest pain. And yet she came through this all with remarkable peace and was very comfortable sharing the reasons for that with me, namely her faith in Jesus. And at one point after one of those sharing moments, she looked at me in a quizzical way and said, you know, doctor, she did call me doctor. I wasn't yet. You have listened to me talk about my faith, but you never say anything. What do you believe? Just a very direct, very simple question. And Colin says, it was like a thunderclap, like a realization that I could not walk away from but that was the most important question I've ever been asked. Collins later, the story goes, met a Methodist pastor, Sam McMillan, who was, as Collins said, a very willing partner for me, tolerating my blasphemous questions and assuring me that if God was real, there would be answers. It was McMillan who introduced Collins to the work of C.S. Lewis, starting with mere Christianity. 
And so I realized, said Collins, in the very first two or three pages of that book, that most of my objections against faith were utterly simplistic. They were arguments from a schoolboy. Here was an Oxford intellectual giant, speaking of Lewis, who had traveled the same path from atheism to faith and had a way of describing why that made sense that was utterly disarming. It was also very upsetting. It was not the answer I was looking for, but it was, for Collins, the answer he eventually found. And at 27, he became a Christian. Goes on to say, the embrace of that faith transformed not only his relationship with God, but also how he viewed other people and himself. They are all, as Lewis said, angels around you. And the notion, therefore, that it is okay to put yourself in the driver's seat in every way, regardless of what effect that has on others, is simply indefensible. So, Peter says, when I asked him how his, he sees his faith now in his late 60s, compared to how he saw it in his late 20s, he told me this, I think I've also arrived at a place where my faith has become a really strong support for dealing with life's struggles. I'll stop there. Now, like I said, this is just one of millions of stories. And, and you know, obviously this is a, a very... Um, uh, a very intelligent man, uh, a very successful man, uh, a, a person who is uh, recognized uh, internationally. He's the one who led the project to unravel the human genome. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant man. But, but he says that this lady, this older woman with heart problems, would tell him about her faith and then asked him very pointedly uh, what he believed. And it, like he said, it was like a thunderclap. And it was then that he went on this quest and it was then that he found Christ and turned from his atheism. And now after all of these decades, he's still following Christ. But his story would be a story of life transformation as a result of meeting Christ. And so you see, these are the things, the empty tomb, the eyewitness testimony, the millions and millions of changed lives. These are all the evidences. And there are many more. We don't have time to go into the others, but there are many more that point us to the same thing, that Jesus was a real person who lived in history, who really did die, who was placed in a tomb, and who rose again from the dead. And so, coming back to those words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus, at the end of that statement to Martha, he asked this question. He said, do you believe this? And that's really what it all comes down to today for us. Do we believe this? Maybe you've not really thought about it. Maybe you haven't really taken the time to consider it. Maybe for you, the idea of death has just been such a distant thing that 
if you've even thought about it, you thought, well, I'll, I'll think more deeply about it later. But now, because we're all confronted with the reality of death, 1.7 million people today have contracted the coronavirus. 108,000 people have died from it. And um, the good news is that many people have recovered. But the, we, we don't know where it's going. But what we do know is 184 countries are in lockdown as a result of it. And so this is going to get us to think. This is going to get us to ask questions that we're normally not asking. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're asking the questions now about, well, what, what about the future? What happens if I die? Well, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. What did he mean by that? Well, he didn't mean that you wouldn't physically die because we do physically die, even though in the bigger picture, his plan is to destroy physical death, and he proved that by rising physically from the dead. But what it means for us now is that life doesn't end at death. Life goes on. And the Bible tells us that life goes on either in God's presence or it goes on separated from his presence. But it's through Jesus that we can have the assurance that life is going to go on and it's going to go on forever in his kingdom for those who believe that he is the son of God who died and rose again to take away our sin, who believe that he destroyed death and has given us eternal life. There is one reason for death there is one solution to death. We saw the reason. Death came through sin. One reason for death. Death is here because of sin. Jesus is the solution because he took away sin and he also conquered death. And he said this, after he had been raised from the dead, listen to this, Jesus said this. He said, I am he who lives and was dead. Wow. Find anyone in history who said anything like that. But also find somebody in history who performed the miracles Jesus performed, who raised the dead as he did, who spoke to the wind and the waves and calmed them, who took a few uh, loaves of bread and fishes and fed thousands of people. You see, all of these things go together. But he says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And when Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades and death, what he means is that I have authority. I have authority over Hades. That Hades is the place where the soul resides. And death is a reference to the body that dies. Jesus says, I have authority over those things. Now that takes us back to where we started with our theme of Jesus renewal. Jesus renewal. Behold, I make all things new. And Easter is, Easter is the beginning of the end of the reign of sin and death that will culminate in God bringing about a world 
where there is no sin and death. And I want to close by reading the passage from Revelation chapter 21, the first five verses. And it says this, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with mankind and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. These words are true and faithful. And 2,000 years after the fact, we can stand today, I can stand today as a person whose life was transformed by Jesus and as a person who knows uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people who have gone through that same transformation, I can stand before you today and I can say these things are faithful and true. And as death is looming, as we mentioned as death is hanging like that proverbial sword of Damocles over all of the nations, those who trust in Christ can know peace and be delivered from the fear of death because we are trusting in the one who conquered death. And that one said to his disciples, he said, because I live, you will live also.